Part two, chapter three of If Winter Comes by A. S. M. Hutchinson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kurt Ziegler. Arrived again in his room, Sabre dropped into his chair. In his eyes was the look that had been in them when he tried to explain to Mr. Fortune about the books. What Mr. Fortune had confessed he found a little beyond him. He thought, The books, of course, Fortune hasn't imagined them, seen them grow and helped them to grow. But it hurts. Like hell, it hurts. And I can't explain to him how I feel about them. I can't explain to anyone. His thoughts moved on. I've been twelve years with him. Twelve years we've been daily together. And when I said that about the books, I sat there, and he sat there, and just looked. Stared at each other like masks. Masks! Nothing but a mask to be seen for either of us. I sit behind my mask, and he sits behind his, and that's all we see. Twelve mortal years! And there are thousands of people in thousands of offices, thousands of homes just the same. All behind masks. Mysterious business. Extraordinary. How do we keep behind? Why do we keep behind? We're all going through the same life. Come the same way, go the same way. You look at insects, ants, scurrying about, and not two of them have a thing in common. Not two of them seem to know one another. And you think it's odd? You think it's because they don't know they're all in the same boat? But we're just the same. They might think it of us. And we do know. And yet you get two lives and put them together, twelve years in an office, in a house. Mabel and I, practically we just sit and look at each other. Her mask, my mask. He thought. One knows what it is, what it looks like with ants. They're all plugging about like mad, like that, not knowing one another nor caring, because they all seem to be looking for something. I wonder... I wonder, are we? Is that the trouble, all looking for something? You can see it in half the faces you see. Some wanting, and knowing they are wanting something. Others wanting something, but just putting up with it, just content to be discontented. You can see it. Yes, you can. Looking for what? Love? But lots have love. Happiness? But aren't lots happy, but are they? He knitted his brows. It goes deeper than that. It's some universal thing that's wanting. It is something that religion ought to give, but doesn't. Light? Some new light to give everyone certainty in religion, in belief. Light? His thoughts went to Mabel. Those houses in King's Close are going to be eighty pounds a year, and what do you think? Mrs. Toller's going to take one. And he had not answered her, but he had rustled the newspaper, and had intended to show her why he rustled the newspaper to show he couldn't stick it. Unkind. His heart smote him for Mabel. Such a pathetically simple thing for Mabel to find enjoyment in. Why, he might just as reasonably rustle the newspaper at a baby because it had enjoyment in a rattle. A rattle would not amuse him. And Mrs. Toller taking a house beyond her means did not amuse him. But why on earth should he? He put the thing to himself in his reasoning way, his brow wrinkled up. She was his wife. She had left her home for his home. She had the right to his interest in her ideas. He had a duty towards her ideas. Unkind, rotten. Upon a sudden impulse, he looked at his watch. 
only just after twelve. He could get back in time for lunch. Lonely for her, day after day, and left as he had left her that morning. They could have a jolly afternoon together. He could make it a jolly afternoon. Nona kept coming into his thoughts, and more so after this twining business, he would have Mabel in his thoughts. He went in and told Mr. Fortune he'd rather thought of taking the afternoon off if he was not wanted. He mounted his bicycle and rode purposefully back to Mabel. The free-wheel run down into Perry Green landed him a little short of his gate. Not bad. Pirrup, the postman, whom he had passed in the bicycle's penultimate struggles, overtook him in its death throes, and watched with interest the miracles of balancing with which, despite his preoccupation of mind, habit made him prolong them to the uttermost inch. He dismounted. "'Anything for me, Pirrup?' "'One for you, Mr. Sabre.' Sabre took the letter and glanced at the handwriting. It was from Nona. Her small, neat, masculine script had once been familiar to him as his own. It was curiously like his own. She had the same trick of not linking all the letters in one word. Her longer words, like his own, looked as if they were two or three short words close together. To this day, when he did not get a letter from her once a year, or in five years, his address on the envelope in her handwriting was a thing he could bring, and sometimes did bring with perfect clearness before his mental vision. He glanced at it, regarded it for slightly longer than a glance, and with a little pucker of brows and lips, he made the action of putting it unopened in his pocket. Then he rested the bicycle against his hip and opened the letter. Northrep's Tuesday. She never dated her letters. He used to be always telling her about that. Tuesday was yesterday. Dear Marco, we're back. We've been from China to Peru, almost. Come up one day and be bored about it. How are you? Nona. He thought. Funny she didn't mention she'd written just now. Perhaps she thought it was funny I didn't say I'd had it. I must tell her. He returned her letter to its envelope and put the envelope in his pocket, then wheeled his bicycle into his gate. He smiled. Mabel will be surprised at me back like this. Mabel was descending the stairs as he entered the hall. In the white dress she wore, she made a pleasant picture against the broad, shallow stairway and the dark paneling. But she did not appear particularly pleased to see him. But he thought, why should she be? That's just it. That's why I've come back. Hello? She greeted him. Have you forgotten something? He smiled invitingly. No, I've just come back. I suddenly thought we'd have a holiday. She showed puzzlement. A holiday? What, the office? All of you? She had paused three steps from the foot of the stairs, her right hand on the banisters. His wife. He slid his hand up the rail and rested it on hers. Good Lord, no, not the office. No, I suddenly thought we'd have a holiday, you and I. He half hoped she would respond to the touch of his hand by turning the palm of her own to it. But he thought, why should she? And she did not. She said, but how extraordinary, whatever for? Well, why not? But what did you say at the office? What reason did you give? I didn't give any. I just said I thought I wouldn't be back. But whatever will Mr. Fortune think? Oh, what does it matter what he thinks? He won't think anything about it. But he'll think it's funny. He thought, dash these butts. This is what he called the niggling. 
It was on the tip of his tongue to say, Why niggle about the thing? But he recollected its purpose. That was him all over. And that was just it. He said brightly, Let him. Do him good. The idea suddenly came to me as a bit of a lark to have an unexpected holiday with you. And I just cleared off and came. She had descended, and he moved along the hall with her towards the morning room. It's rather extraordinary, she said. She certainly was not enthusiastic over it. She asked, Well, what are you going to do? He wished he had thought of some plan as he came along. What time's lunch? Half past one? What about getting your bike and going for a bit of a run first? She was at a drawer of her table where she kept, with beautiful neatness, implements for various household duties. A long pair of scissors came out. I can't possibly. I've things to do. Besides, someone's coming to lunch. He had begun to feel a fool. The feeling nettled him, and he thought, Why, someone? Dash, I might be a stranger in the house. Why doesn't she say so? And then he thought, Why should she? This is just it. I'd have heard all about it at breakfast if I'd been decently communicative. He said, Good. Who? She took a shallow basket from the shelf. He knew this and the long scissors for her flower-cutting implements. Mr. Bagshaw. And before he could stop himself, he groaned, Oh, Lord! She flew up, and he rushed tumultuously to make amends for his blunder and prevent her flying up. Mark, I do wish. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I really am most awfully sorry, Mabel. Oh, Lord, it's not really profanity, you know. It's not. It's just my way. I know that. But he persevered. As a matter of fact, it's clear connection of thought in this case. Bagshaw's a clergyman, and my mind flew instantly to celestial things. She did not respond to this. In any case, I really cannot see why you should object to Mr. Boom Bagshaw. I don't. I don't in the least. I've heard you say often that he's far and away the best preacher you've ever heard. He is, absolutely. Well, then, it's just he's coming to lunch. He's such a terrific talker, and you know how I can't stick talkers. Yes, that's why I invite him when you're not here. He laughed and came across the room towards her impulsively. He was going to carry this through. You've got me there, properly. He took the basket from her hand. Come on, we'll cut the flowers. I'll be absolutely chatty with old Bagshaw. She smiled, and her smile encouraged him tremendously. This was the way to do it. They went through the glass doors into the garden, and he continued, Really chatty. I'm going to turn over a new leaf. As a matter of fact, that's why I came back. I got out of bed this morning on the wrong side. Didn't I? He felt, as he always remembered once feeling as a boy, when, after going to bed, he had come downstairs in his nightshirt and said to his father, I say, father, I didn't tell the truth this morning. I had been smoking. He had never forgotten the enormous relief of that confession, nor the bliss of his father's. That's all right, old man. That's fine. Don't cry, old chap. And he felt precisely that enormous relief now. She said, Was that the reason? How awfully funny of you! And she gave one of her sudden bursts of laughter. He had a swift feeling that this was not quite the same as the reception of his confession by his father in that long ago, but he thought immediately. The thing's quite different. Anyway, he had confessed, and she knew why he had come back so suddenly. He felt immensely happy. 
and when she said, "'I think we'll have some of the roses,' he gaily replied, "'Yes, rather, those roses. Fine. How easy to be on jolly terms!' And immediately it proved not so easy. He had got over the rocks of niggling, and found himself in the shoals of exasperation. She cut the first rose, and held it to her lips, smelling it. "'Lovely. Who is your letter from, Mark?' He thought, how on earth did she know? He had forgotten it himself. However did you know? From Lady Tybar. They're back. I saw you from the window with this postman. Lady Tybar. Whatever is she writing to you about? He somehow did not like this why whatever, and being watched was rather beastly. He remembered he had fiddled about with the letter, half put it in his pocket, then taken it out again. And why not? What did it matter? but he had a provision that it was going to matter. Mabel did not particularly like Nona, and he said, just to say they're back. She wants us to go up there. An invitation? Why ever didn't she write to me? Why ever, again? May I see it? He took the letter from his pocket and handed it to her. It's not exactly an invitation, not formal. She did what he called flicked the letter out of its envelope. He watched her reading it, and in his mind he could see as perfectly as she with her eyes, the odd, neat script, in his mind he read it with her, word by word. Dear Marco, we're back. We've been from China to Peru, almost. Come up one day and be bored about it. How are you? Nona. His thought was, damn the letter. Mabel handed it back, without returning it to its envelope. She said, no, it's not formal. She snipped three roses with astonishing swiftness. Sniff, snip, snip. Saber thought about it in his mind for something to say. There was nothing in his mind to say. He had an absurd vision of two hands feeling about in the polished interior of a skull, as one might fumble for something in a large jar. At the end of an enormous cavity of time, he found some slight remark about blight on the rose trees, the absence of it this year, and ventured it. He had again an absurd vision of dropping into an enormous cavern, as a pea into an immense bowl. It seemed to tinkle feebly and forlornly, as a pea would. No blight this year, eh? No. Is there? agreed Mabel. Snip. Nevertheless, conversation arose from the forlorn pea as it was maintained. They moved about the garden from flower-bed to flower-bed. In half an hour the shallow basket was beautified with fragrant blooms, and Mabel thought she had enough. "'Well, that's that,' said Sabre, as they re-entered the morning room. Low Jinks, her matchless training at the level of mysteriously performed duties pat to the moment without command, appeared with a tray of vases. Each vase was filled to precisely half its capacity with water. There were also a folded newspaper, a pair of small gilt scissors, and a saucer. Lojink spread the newspaper at one end of the table, arranged the vases in a semicircle upon it, and placed the gilt scissors precisely in alignment with the right-hand vase of the semicircle, and the saucer precisely in alignment with the left-hand vase. She then withdrew, closing the door with exquisite softness. Sabre had never seen this rite before. The perfection of his performance was impressive. He thought, Mabel is marvelous. He said, Shall I take them out of the basket? No, leave them. I'll take them up just as I want them. 
She took up a creamy rose and snipped off a fragrant stalk over the saucer. "'Why does she call you, Marco?' He was utterly taken aback. If the question had come from anyone but Mabel, he would have quite failed to connect it with the letter. But there had distinctly been an incident over the letter, though so far closed, as he imagined, that he was completely surprised. He said, "'Who, Nona?' "'Yes, Nona, if you like. Lady Tybar. "'Why, she always has. You know that.' Mabel put the rose into a specimen vase with immense care and touched a speck off its petals with her fingers. "'I really didn't.' "'Mabel, you do know. Mabel, you know you do. "'You must have heard her.' "'Well, I may have, but long ago. "'I certainly didn't know she used it in letters.' He felt he was growing angry. "'What on earth's the difference?' It seems to me there's a great deal of difference. I didn't know she wrote you letters. He was damn angry. Damn it, she doesn't write me letters. She shrugged her shoulders. You seem to get them anyway. Maddening. And then he thought, I'm not going to let this be maddening. This is just what happens. He said, Well, this is silly. I've known her. We've known one another for years. Since we were children, pretty well. She's called me by my Christian name since I can remember. You must have heard her. We don't see much of her. Perhaps you haven't. I thought you had. Anyway, dash the thing. What does it matter? It doesn't matter, she launched a flower into a vase. A bit. I only think it's funny, that's all. Well, it's just her way. Mabel gave a little sniff. He thought it was over, but it wasn't over. If you ask me, I call it a funny letter. You say your Christian name, but it isn't your Christian name, Marco. And then saying, how are you like that? Like what? She just said it, didn't she? Yes, I know. And then, Nona, don't you call that funny? Well, I always used to call her Nona. She'd have thought it funny, as you call it, to put anything else. I tell you, it's just her way. Well, I think it's a very funny way, and I think somebody else would think so. I don't like her. I never did like her. There seemed no more to say. He walked up to his room. He closed the door behind him and sat on the straight-back chair, his legs out-thrust. Failure? He had come back home thus suddenly, with immensely good intentions. Failure? On the whole, no. There was a great deal more he could have said downstairs, and a great deal more he had felt uncommonly inclined to say. But he had left the morning room without saying it, and that was good. That redeemed his sudden return from absolute failure. Why had he returned? He worked back through the morning on the Fargus principle. Not because of his thoughts after the twining business. Not because of the disturbance of the twining business. No. He had returned because he had seen Nona. Thoughts. Feelings had been stirred in him, by meeting her, and it had suddenly been rather hateful to have those thoughts, and to feel that, that Mabel had no place in them. Well, why had he come up here? What was he doing up here? Well, it hadn't been altogether successful. Mabel hadn't been particularly excited to see him. No, but that didn't count. Why should she be? He had gone off after breakfast, glum as a bear. Well, then, there was that niggling business over why he had returned. Always like that. Never plump out over a thing he put up. Niggling. And then this infernal business about the letter. 
That word funny. She must have used it a hundred times. Still, the niggling had been carried off. They had got into the garden together, and this infernal letter business. At least he'd come away without boiling over it. Much better to come away as he did. Still. A gong boomed enormously through the house. It had been one of her father's wedding presents to Mabel, and it always reminded Sabre of the Dean's, her father's voice. The Dean's voice boomed, swelling into a loud boom when he was in mid-speech and reverberating into a distant boom as his periods terminated. This was the warning gong for lunch. In ten minutes, in this perfectly ordered house, a different gong, a set of chimes, would announce that lunch was ready. The reverberations had scarcely ceased when Low Jinx, although she had caused the reverberations, appeared in his room with a brass can of hot water. "'Mr. Boom Bagshaw has not arrived yet, sir,' said Low Jinx. "'But the mistress thought we wouldn't wait any longer.' She displaced the ewer from the basin and substituted the brass can. She covered the can with a white towel, uncovered the soap dish, and disappeared, closing the door softly, as if it and the doorpost were padded with velvet. Perfect establishment! Sabre washed his hands and went down. Mabel was in the morning room, seated at the center table where the flowers had been, and where now was her embroidery basket. She was embroidering an art which, in common with all domestic arts, she performed to perfection. "'Bagshaw's late,' said Sabre. Mabel glanced at the clock. Her gesture above her busy needle was pretty. "'Well, he wasn't absolutely sure about coming. I thought we wouldn't wait. Ah, there he is.' Sabre thought, "'Good, that business is over. Nothing in it. Only Mabel's way.' "'Sounds in the hall.' "'In the morning room,' came Low Jinks' voice. "'Lunch. Wash your hands, sir?' There was only one person in all England who— arriving at Crawshaw's, would not have been gently but firmly enfolded by the machine-like order of its perfect administration, and had been led in and introduced with rights proper to the occasion. But that one person was the Reverend Cyril Boom Bagshaw, and now he strolled across the threshold and into the room. End of chapter 3 Recording by Kirk Ziegler, Ogden, Utah, voiceover-solutions.com